little rascals. We are a group of friends who just want to put on an amazing show and have a great time with our buddies. And that is infectious for somebody who loves cinema at its purest form. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition. Joined here for this episode by Box Office Senior Analyst Sean Robbins, as well as Analyst Chad Kenner. Chad, you spoke with Virgil Cardamone of the Mahoning Drive-In for our feature segment this week. It's been described as a movie theater, a drive-in movie theater, actually, that's like a bucket list destination for horror fans. Can you give us a, a little preview of, uh, of what we're going to be hearing in that feature interview with Virgil? Yeah, it's definitely on my bucket list as well. His enthusiasm and passion is pretty infectious. So I'm looking forward to a future trip to Pennsylvania. There's a great doc from 2017 called At the Drive-In that highlights their story. And after speaking with Virgil for our November-December issue about the ways that they lean into horror, I wanted to delve further into the Mahoning's overall season and the elements behind their success. This is a theater that they go all out in terms of eventizing their screenings. They like with special installations, with special menu options. So I think there's there's really a lot to take inspiration from with the Mahoning as we look at theaters, maybe looking at ways that they can get a little bit more innovative in terms of their marketing, in terms of bringing people out to the cinemas. Moving on to box office. Sadly, uh, it was not a great one at the box office this weekend. Actually, the third lowest box office weekend of the year behind Super Bowl weekend and then September 22nd through through 24th. Sean, if it weren't for the strike, we would be looking at a very different situation now because this, this weekend would have been Dune Part 2, right? Yeah, this uh, for especially our colleague Russ, this was a particularly sad weekend because it should have been Dune 2 weekend and it wasn't. And that really would have made a huge difference. I mean, we're talking about a movie that could have easily had a, a 40 to $50 million opening, if not higher, and, and that would have pushed the box office over $100 million for the weekend. So that was a big dent to not have it there. I feel like, I mean, even with the strikes, you know, keeping actors from going out and participating in marketing, I feel like we've had such good momentum coming off of, of Barbenheimer. You know, you have the summer successes and then you have Taylor Swift and then you have Five Nights at Freddy's, uh, you know, coming day and date. And yet still in theaters grossing $80 million, which is more than anyone expected it to debut with. And then it just kind of feels like uh, we came to a halt. But Sean, I do want to give you a chance here to discuss Five Nights at Freddy's still at the number one uh, spot, top of the box office in its second weekend. I say, yeah, no one expected it to debut to $80 million. And, and I, I think that's true. But you were, th- were, I think, one of the few analysts who was saying like, no, wait, like a lot of people are going to come out to see this one. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's nice to get one uh, every now and then. And like, I'm very much the person that if it's off by just like 1%, I'm upset. Like, it's a futile pursuit of perfection when we're talking about box office projections. And it was close enough on Freddy's, but it was just so hard to to really read. And I I think that speaks to the fact that it was such a young audience. It's, It's a generation that, frankly, I don't think the industry has paid enough attention to yet. And I think this movie will change that. But yeah, of course, very front-loaded. We expected that. It dropped about 75% this weekend. 
a big part of that is attributable to the streaming aspect, but just also the nature of the film with Halloween ending and it being a very fan-driven movie during those Thursday and Friday shows initially. So it's, you know, but I think ultimately theaters are, are more than happy to have this and it's it's the birth of a new franchise. I'll be curious to see if Universal and Blumhouse go with a hybrid strategy for the sequel. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, even though it, it fell quite a substantial amount in its second week, it earned enough to make it the highest grossing horror movie of the year to this point, passing Scream 6 internationally. It actually had a, quite a bit of international success this weekend, debuting in countries where it did not initially come out last weekend. Chad, can you give us a sense of how uh, Five Nights at Freddy's is doing internationally? Yeah, Spain picked up $5 million. It was the biggest opening day of 2023, also the biggest horror opening day of all time, and the second biggest opening weekend for horror. So lots of records there. Also in Italy, $4 million, surpassing the total lifetimes of The Conjuring, Halloween, all the Annabelle films, and Megan, claiming the biggest Blumhouse opening of all time there. 50% second weekend drop in Mexico where it held on to its number one spot. So it's sitting at 16.9 million there. And then 38% drop in Brazil. So very mild there where it was a holiday period and it earned more than twice as much as the Eras tour on its opening weekend. So very strong holds in Mexico and Brazil, in addition to strong opening performances in other markets. So far, it has passed the $100 million mark domestically, uh, sitting at $113.6 million based on estimates of the weekends. The actuals have not come in yet. Globally, we're looking at around $217.1 million. And Sean, I just want to I want to pepper you with some with some questions here, as I as I always like to do. This feels like the day and date release strategy. I feel like it certainly didn't hurt the film. Maybe it even helped the film's theatrical performance because you have Universal putting all of the marketing weight behind this film at the same time. So is this something that, you know, do you think it makes sense that studios would maybe be looking at returning to uh, trying out a day and date release strategy, maybe for an upcoming horror film or or things just so like hyper specific for this title that it wouldn't really work elsewhere? Yeah, I think it's mostly the latter. You know, I think by and large, day and date strategies aren't 100% dead, but they're at least 95% dead for big, important movies. I do think it's it's interesting that Universal has continued to use this now for three straight Octobers with the two Halloween sequels and now Five Nights at Freddy's. I think especially that's probably because that's it's the least amount of risk in terms of trying to do a day-and-date film because horror is such a theatrically driven genre. People want to go see that together, and it's... We you know, it's proven that time and time again in recent years with just so many and movies. It's typically kind of, very a very front loaded film, so you know right. people are probably going to go out and see it in theaters on the opening weekend, and you know that like there is going to be naturally a pretty big drop off, especially immediately after Halloween. Sure, especially with Five Nights at Freddy's. I mean, it's it's had this you know I say a cult like following, but it's it's a pretty big following, and I think that cult classic has taken on a new kind of meaning in this era as opposed to maybe what it meant 25, 30 years ago when you know you looked at something like Rocky Horror Picture Show, which kind of came back to theaters, still does every now and then. It it's kind of carried on generationally, and 
I think Five Nights at Freddy's is is maybe the next evolution of of that type of movie. Just having seen it myself with the opening night crowd, it was the most rowdy, raucous group of teenagers (laughs) I have maybe Uh. ever seen in my life. We'll see where where Freddy's goes. I, I know it has a lot of lore in the video games. They've got plenty of material for the sequels that are clearly going to be happening. But yeah, I mean, to really to your original question, I don't think this is going to move the needle much in terms of changing studios' mind. I think it's it's really just Universal, especially, kind of still experimenting with this, but very, very selectively. And do you think Universal and Blumhouse expected with the day and date that opening weekend figure? I'm curious if they left money on the table there. Yeah, I think it's it's arguable. Does the movie hit 100 million with uh, a traditional opening and no streaming availability? Maybe. I think it's likely that some people decided to stay at home and watch it, but we'll just really honestly never know what that could have really translated to. I do think the 75% weekend drop is maybe a little bit more indicative because I think repeat viewings are more impacted from that availability at home. I mean, what I wonder looking at the performance of this film is uh, what are those other nostalgia-driven titles, those nostalgia-driven IPs that generation, uh, that Gen Z maybe would come out to the movie theaters to see? Somewhat verbose way of asking, what are the kids into these days? But (laughs) it's just to think about, like, what are those properties that the under 25 crowd now have, you know, fond associations with from their childhoods? Do you see anything looking forward on the calendar, Sean, that piques your interest there? Because I don't. (laughs) There's not a lot, but I think that's going to change. I think movies like this, I think the Gentle Minions trend last year really awakened studios to that kind of nostalgia. Because when Despicable Me came out, you know, that was almost 15, 14, 15 years ago. So that nostalgia was certainly in play when (laughs) Rise of Gru came out last summer and and a bunch of teenage and young adult kids were dressed up in their suits going to the movie theater. I think things like that, I think the Shrek meme over the last couple of years has really taken over like that generation. And I think that's a huge reason that, you know, we keep hearing rumors. I don't know if it's officially announced by Universal, but it seems like, you know, it's, I think it has been, it's just not dated that there will be a new Shrek movie. And that's the kind of thing that it's smart because that's going to play to a lot of, a lot of different moviegoers and just video games in general. Uh, You know, I think we heard a lot of talk over the past decade or two about how video game revenue was competing with theatrical box office and that was taking away maybe some of the interest. But I think there's a crossover, clearly. We've seen several video game movies work really, really well now in the last couple of years. And that's where I think a lot of that's going to come in for studios to to be able to draw from that kind of IP. It's interesting, like, for the longest time, video game adaptations always flopped like it was yeah. just it feel, felt like a curse subgenre almost and it, and it feels like we've finally gotten to the point where somebody cracked it chad how about you i mean you looking looking forward at the calendar is there anything that sticks out to you as something that maybe could be uh, latch on to this gen z nostalgia i think the one that jumps out for me is the hunger games the ballad of songbirds and snakes uh, I was talking to some coll- early college age students the other day, and I was asking them about Five Nights at Freddy's. They were all very excited to be going to see that. And I mentioned if there were any other films that they were really looking forward to. And The Hunger Games came up as a nostalgia factor for them. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's definitely worth considering. The big, you know, the big element to me that is kind of working against Ballad is that Jennifer Lawrence was just on a rocket to fame with those original movies. You would say she was catching fire. 
Oh, <laughs> see, I was well I was avoiding the pun, but you know, I, yeah, well placed. <laughs> so I do think it could help. Is that it's not a superhero movie, and not to go on a tangent, but I think people are kind of interested in. And people still want to see their franchises. They want to follow their favorite characters. But we've seen repeatedly in this this year, especially that non superhero, non comic book movies are either meeting expectations or maybe overperforming a little bit. But the unfortunate case for Ballad is that, you know, I think a lot of outlets, a lot of this industry, a lot of the media is just going to compare it to the previous films. That might not necessarily be fair, though. So we'll kind of see how it goes. And, you know, if it generates good word of mouth, it, it could have a good run through the holidays. We'll be talking about the state of superhero movies a little bit later on in this episode. I think a takeaway from, from Five Nights at Freddy's, if you know any uh, people who are maybe older teens, younger 20s, ask them what sort of stuff they're into and you might be surprised <laughs> and you might have a bead onto a next surprise theatrical hit. Definitely not a surprise hit to anyone, of course, was Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour in its fourth and final weekend, still at number two, fell 13% to 13.5 million to a domestic cum of around 165 million Sean, so they said that this is the last weekend. Like, I assume that that scarcity, you know, this is the last time to see it on the big screen is what drove that really mild 13% drop. Do you think they're going to keep it in theaters? Like, this is it? Or is this going to be the sort of thing that's going to come back periodically? Do you yeah. Think? Well, interestingly enough, we did all think that this was the last weekend. And on Friday, AMC actually confirmed they're going to add showtimes for this coming weekend. So it's still going to be in theaters. And that was never exactly announced that original press release just specified tickets would be on sale through the first weekend of November. And, you know, traditionally speaking, just reading between the lines, it sounded like that would make it the final weekend. So a little bit of confusion, I think there, but I don't think a lot of people knew that. And in fact, I don't really think anybody knew that except probably AMC and variance films and Taylor Swift's camp. So I think you're right. I think maybe that, that stronghold this weekend could play, have been driven by, the expectation that it was going to leave theaters, but for at least another weekend and, you know, maybe more, we'll see. I think they're kind of taking it on a case by case basis as it keeps making money. You know, why not just leave it on screen? I mean, yeah. Uh, also having a pretty, a uh, pretty mild drop in its third weekend, number three at the box office killers of the flower moon by Apple studios being distributed domestically by Paramount right now. It's sitting at about 52 million uh, domestic worldwide around 120 million. I mean, I know this movie cost a lot of money to make and I know it seems like, you know, a $7 million third weekend domestic haul doesn't seem like a lot compared to all the money and all the marketing that went into this film. But I mean, Sean, it feels like this one, this is a prestige thing for Apple Studios. They have the money. They're rich as anything. Like they want prestige. They want the awards. It's, it's not even necessarily about the box office receipts for them, I would think. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think if this were a quote-unquote traditional studio film in the pre-streaming days, we would definitely be talking about Flower Moon as a major misfire. And and some, you know, a lot of people still are, and I think there's a fair argument to that if, if we're just talking about the budget. $200 million to cost plus marketing. You know, traditionally speaking, the rule of thumb is the box office is going to need to double the cost in order for the studio to break even. But that's old school thinking now, especially in the case of this film and Apple. Like you said, they intend this to 
win awards or at least be nominated for awards. They tend to drive subscriptions when eventually it is on their streaming service. They're investing into a lot of intangibles, and that takes it a little bit outside the normal tangible conversation of just looking at the box office alone. And then uh, closing out the top five at number four, we have from A24, Priscilla going wide-ish to uh, about 1,300 screens, opening to 5 million, long, largely uh, getting to that 5 million on a, a strength of a younger female audience, 75% under, 70, under 35 and 65% female. And then at spot number five, Chad, we have, I feel like we've been saying this a lot lately and I like that we are, we have a surprise at the <laughs> yeah. top five spot at the box office this weekend. What are we looking at? Number five, Radical, which I don't know what this film is. So maybe you can fill me in from Pantelion <laughs> on 419 screens at 2.7 million. Well, it stars uh, Eugenio Derbez, which is a kind of inspiring teacher based on a true story. Sean, what was that Derbez movie that did surprisingly, was it like How to Be a Latin Lover a few years ago? Like, Yeah, yeah. He's definitely crossed over into this market very well. Instructions Not Included, going back about a decade, was one that stood out. You mentioned Latin Lover. He was in the Overboard remake with Anna Faris. A few years ago. So yeah, he's certainly, when he's in a film or just involved with a film, it's definitely something that kind of pops up on the radar. Yeah, like we've, we've seen in the past few months, you know, a film like The Blind, which caters to more of a faith-based audience. You know, it had two weeks in the top five. And here we're really seeing this Spanish language film from Pantelli. And of course, that is their specialty. That is what they do, bringing people out to the movie theaters. We also had uh, Oppenheimer came back onto some premium screens, including IMAX. <laughs> Sean, how many times have you seen it? <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> I, di- I didn't get to go this weekend. I'm trying to f- like squeeze out a three-hour window sometime this week before it leaves again. So I-, I need it. But I've already pre-ordered the 4K disc. So either way, I'm watching it again this month. <laughs> and then also, I want to I want to talk about international a little bit because Trolls Band Together is one that is curious to me because. It has come out, it started coming out internationally in in mid-October. It's come out in a lot of markets. It's done quite well there. Right now, it's earned about 57 million in 54 territories. It's coming out in two weekends on November 17th. Sean, what does the international performance of, of Trolls Band Together indicate to you about the domestic debut performance, so you know what film could achieve? And like, should they have moved it forward to this weekend? I feel like there was a gap on the calendar because right after Trolls Band Together is Wish, two kids movies like back to back. Yeah, you know, I think the timing here is very curious. And especially once Dune left, this past weekend was wide open for someone to come in and take it. And I'm, I'm still surprised no one did because with the Marvels, Hunger Games, Trolls and Wish all coming out in a three weekend span, something is going to be hurt by that. And traditionally, like animated sequels, more often than not, see diminished returns. It's very, very rare that there's something that actually builds on the initial success and and blows up like Shrek or Despicable Me. You know, those are the exceptions that really prove the rule. And in Troll's case, it's it's kind of been all over, you know, streaming a few years ago with the second film. It, it had a Netflix series that ran for a few years, so it's very well exposed. And I think some of these international openings speak to that. It's its UK opening was about half of the 2016 film. That's kind of often a, a fair barometer for the domestic market. Not always, not in every case. But, you know, I, I think certainly 
it'll be very interesting to see in the domestic market what happens when it does go up against Disney's wish, just opening a few days later, essentially. Because we haven't had a wide release for family-friendly movies since, yeah. what, Paw Patrol? Paw Patrol? I mean, I feel like if it, had, it. if it had come out <laughs> this weekend, then it really could have. But then again, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a movie where they are really relying on the star power of Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake to yeah. go out and promote it. And like they're, you know, fingers crossed that they're able to do that before the movie comes out on the 17th. Hopefully they would go a long way toward bringing it. I know the early access shows were held this past weekend. Those sold pretty well. So that's a good early start for it to at least and maybe generate some some grassroots buzz going into the opening. But before Trolls Band Together opens wide next weekend, we're looking at the Marvels, the latest edition in the MCU. Sean, what are your predictions here? I mean, I hate to say it. I think this is probably the first time that I can remember in covering the MCU where I feel like there's a genuine concern. And we'll see how it plays out. So we're recording this on Monday. Still a few days to go. Maybe pre-sales pick up. You know, maybe some of that initial fan rush that really drove Marvel for years has kind of subsided and people wait until closer to release because it's not as much of a you know, have to see this, afraid to be spoiled kind of moment. But I think industry tracking is a little bullish compared to where we've been at. I'm honestly thinking that this could end up one of the lowest openings that Marvel has seen, if not the lowest. And that would basically be the 50 to 60 million range. It's going to need some help. The review embargo is not up until the day before release. Sometimes Ooh, that just means sign. it's... Uh, yeah, yeah no. sometimes it's to protect spoilers. <laughs> sometimes it's for other reasons. And I just don't think the marketing has really conveyed much of the plot <laughs> to be honest i think it's it's relying on you know saying this is captain marvel you saw her in avengers endgame i've seen spots showing thanos we know thanos is not going to be in this movie it's just always a concern to me when a film has to to lean on past successes to sell it like captain marvel and two other characters from two different tv shows yeah. that you may or or may not have watched earlier this year the third ant-man movie opened to 106 million any chance we get to 100 million opener for this, do you think? I would be shocked. Okay. I, I would be absolutely right. shocked. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of this has kind of just been built up, whether it was overexposure through streaming, whether it's the word of mouth of the last few films. Regardless, and I, I think that's, that's the important context we'll have to take with the Marvels is whatever numbers it ends up opening. For years, we always talked about each movie was kind of maybe inflated or boosted by that curiosity and that goodwill. Now it's, it's a little bit of the opposite. And not every Marvel movie and really none of them operate in a vacuum. There are just so many. There's the universe of factors at play. Yeah. So nothing really feels essential anymore. Yeah. You know, which is that's tough. That's what really drove the franchise for so long. Sean, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we love to hear uh, love to hear your box office insights. And when we come back, we'll be hearing from Virgil Cardamone of the Mahoning Drive-In Cinema just a great, innovative-looking, amazing drive. Like, this cinema just looks so, so freaking cool. And Chad, I'm really happy you got to speak with Virgil, who uh, is one of the people who runs the theater, to find out about some of the ways that they have crafted this horror movie mecca. 
Virgil, thank you for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. The Mahoning Drive-In Theater in Leighton, Pennsylvania has become a destination for moviegoers, specifically horror lovers. Can you give us a little background on the theater and your mission? We've been blessed with a voice. We've been blessed with this ability to reach people. And our passion is the preservation of drive-in culture and the preservation of 35 millimeter. And that's not something that is sold. There are plenty of people that, that share that love and want to go back to a simpler time when it comes to film presentation. I feel like it's still connected to those roots being a retro drive-in and being the only drive-in in the country, right? That's all 35 millimeter. That's correct. That has truly become our legend over the last nine years, going on 10 years that we've gone retro. The theater has been able to survive and stay open throughout the entire run of its career, but it's definitely seen some hard times. And when we came in in 2014, it was like five cars maybe a night, Mm. like just barely able to keep the lights on, definitely functioning at a loss. So mm-hmm. when the studios really put the pressure on us to say, you know, if you don't go digital, you're out of luck. We put our heads together and was like, we can't do much worse. You know, like it, it, there's back against the wall. So that's when we made the decision to stick with 35 millimeter as our sole format. And more than anything, it was out of necessity, you know, because mm-hmm. we, we truly didn't have an option to go digital. But It's become our calling card. Our stance here is the magic lies in the 35 millimeter film. Mm. All of us growing up seeing movies on 35 millimeter film, the appreciation for it has just grown to an insane fever pitch where we have people coming from all over the world to experience Mm. the love of it. Yeah, it's kind of fallen into in the way that vinyl had a resurgence and these other vintage formats have come back. I feel like 35 millimeter is something that is unique and people look at as a special experience. Yeah, it's, it has the same appeal for sure. Just like nothing sounds like, you know, that vinyl record doesn't have that lived in kind of feel 35 millimeter has that same pull for people. And we see Mm -hmm. the appreciation shifting, you know, from kids who could care less about 35 millimeter to all of a sudden being like, you know, 35 millimeter fanatics coming in with, Mm -hmm you know, film reels of their own, trying to do the basement 35 millimeter projection. It's taken on such a life that is beyond inspiring for what we did, you know, and what we do. And at the time, I'm I'm sure, I think we've talked about previously, the studios thinking that you're a little crazy for sticking with 35 millimeter. And, and- yes, when I reached out to, I won't say the studio, but one of the studios, I was asking them for, pretty much information on how we could get 35 millimeter from the studio. And he said, if you're sticking with 35 millimeter, you're going to be out of business within a year, you Mm -hmm. know, just like no sort of support. The only suggestion I can give to you is go digital as quick as possible, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the same guy who knows me by first name and, you know, books a lot of our films for us out of the vaults. And at this point we work with, Every single major studio and beyond, we are connected with with so many private collectors, which is a whole other 
kind of secret film world, which mm. we love. The fact that there are these people who collected 35 millimeter over the years, and now that there's this beacon of 35 millimeter, they want to take it to the ultimate show place to be shown. For those that don't know what Exhum Films is and what they do and what that partnership looks like, could you share a little bit about that? Absolutely, yeah. So when we first went retro, it really became a challenge of where we were going to get these 35 millimeter prints, especially ones that are genre deep cut titles that we mm. love, you know? Mm. And we were blessed in that first year to connect with Harry Guerrero mm -hmm. at Exhum Films, who at that point had been doing retro shows for probably 20 years in the Philly and Jersey area, and specifically 35 millimeter. He's, he's a humongous 35 millimeter collector in the country. So that was really the kickoff of the partnership. We said, let's try to do once a month shows here at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater with Exhumed. And see if we can, you know, find our footing as far as the retro goes. And that's when we really started with the themed, quote unquote, events. That first year, we started Zombie Fest. We started Camp Blood, which are going on their 10th year. So really establishing these big fan shows, these weekend long shows, was very much a, a thing from the start. You know, and having Harry there as a, a partner in crime to supply us with films was, again, such a, a destined situation for the Mahoning. Everything here has been such a weird, magical, like right time at the right place situation. And the fact that we were able to connect with Harry in that first year just took us right away to uh, another level. And that fandom for both of us and fan base for both of us has grown immensely over the last 10 years. So I think it's been a mutual benefit for both of us. I'm curious if there's another exhibitor out there and let's say they're sitting on a 35 millimeter projector that they're not currently using. What is that whole process like? Yeah. So what we did in 2015, right after we went retro is we transferred back to a reel to reel system. So instead of the platter, which 90% of 35 millimeter houses have, we run every 20 minutes with a physical changeover. So the projectionist is threading up every 20 minutes, physically changing over from one projector to another, which allows private collectors and now studios to want to work with us. They don't want their prints cut, you know, but to put them on a platter, you'd have to cut the heads off of them and pretty much connect all the picture together in one shot. Right. So here you have private collectors who can retain the original appeal of their prints and also be able to screen them without any problems at a, you know, a professional theater. So I find that the transfer to 35 millimeter or people who have the 35 millimeter, there's very little appeal on a financial level to want to do it. It goes against kind of, I guess, what the drive-in model is, which is try to run everything as efficiently as possible mm -hmm. and boost those profits as much as possible. We invest into these shows for 35 millimeter way more than a digital theater has to for any of their screenings just to get these prints across the country, things like that. But We've seen people, other theaters, you know, kind of strike up their 35 for special shows. We started 
doing interviews on our podcast with other drive-in owners and they've kind of taken note and started doing some retro stuff, whether it's digital or 35 millimeter. I just feel like it's a, a slight movement in the culture, you know, again, with Hollywood, everything being remakes and relying on you knowing the IP beforehand, we're the ultimate IP house. You know, you can come and spend the whole entire weekend with the Ghostbusters. It's, I think, that appeal for theaters that they really want to tap into. Because as somebody who ran the major chains, indoor chains, as a general manager, it's like renting a seat. It's a really sad kind of experience when it comes to somebody who loves those midnight screenings and that fandom appeal of what movies used to have. I think there's that as well, where bringing back the showmanship of cinema you know i miss the days of those midnight screenings waiting in line when you could uh it was like a first shot now it's you know you have movies coming out on wednesday afternoon as the early (laughs) early (laughs) screening so just the whole culture and landscape has shifted and i think the mahoning is like a a preservation ground for a simpler time in cinema as well as america yeah you're so right because i think back to those midnight screenings and you know you you maybe had to wait outside before they let you in and then you yeah. wanted to get that seed and get your concessions in and yes and really leaning into the excitement of it and i did love that you know the regal and amc did their best with fan events and these specialty fathom events and things like that but it really was uh, an eye opener being immersed in it to be like oh wow you know like what the mahoning does and what the mahoning is doing is trying to keep a piece of that original excitement for movies alive you know and once covid hit it became that ultimate ground to stand on when it was like a movie theater is going to survive it's like well here's this little theater that's leaning into classic movies and the love of movies on the most pure level And doing incredibly well. And I think it was an inspiration for a lot of owners and people in the industry to say, you know what, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to take some shots, which is maybe the ultimate inspiration for us. The fact that it has rippled across the landscape. This little theater in in Lehigh, Pennsylvania has made its mark in some way on, on the theater industry, which is just mind bending. What were those early days like? How did some of the elements that the Mahoning is now famous for begin? And when did that really start to gain traction? I think we found our footing in in 2015 when we really started leaning into the commitment of retro film. You know, the idea in 2014 was like, let's give this a shot. And seeing the success that we had immediately with it, at least in comparison to the first run, it became a situation where it's like, let's go full on into this. Now that we have the ability to play what we want, let's really program what we want. So that's when we started leaning into the ultimate weekend long fan immersive events, you know, Mm -hmm. the guest elements of it, which is a humongous appeal for the Mahoning. The fact that we have Hollywood come in and embrace us that started, uh, I'd say a year or two later with having some guests come in. I want to say Zach Galligan from Gremlins was one of our first guests that we ever had Mm. in 2017. And we saw right away, like it took 
the love and appreciation for what we were doing to a whole other level. So that element got added in 2017. Probably right around then we started doing the sets as well. Mm-hmm. Another big thing, the photo ops that became a part of the show. So when you came to Camp Blood for uh, a Friday the 13th slasher event, there was also a, you know, kind of camping themed photo op with Jason ready to slash you. And, and people ate it up to the point where we invested into that every single big show. The overnights, which I would say is a humongous sell for us. The mm-hmm. fact that people can travel across the country and then just stay the whole weekend with us. Yeah. We offered that that first year. The very first retro show we did in 2014 also offered overnight at that point, quote unquote, camping, you know. So having that, I think, really lent to the destination, I guess, of it, where yeah. people didn't hesitate to travel three, four or five hours to come to us and spend a weekend. It made a lot more economical sense for them to you know, come and spend a whole weekend for 20 bucks instead of having to rent a hotel and a cabin or whatever else it is. So that was another huge element. We have a pre-show DJ set, which a lot of drive-ins will play music before showtime, but we actually run a DJ booth from a retro DJ console in our projection booth, which plays retro-themed music to the the movies you're about to Mm -hmm. experience. The guest appeal, for sure. The overnighting, for sure. The reel-to-reel happened almost instantly. So a lot of that stuff got implemented right away. And then we've been figuring out how to best balance that and best offer that. We've talked previously about your background and how that kind of brought in the idea for the event poster as if you were going to a concert. I was in my band still. had been a singer my whole entire life, performer my whole entire life. And the idea of bringing the showmanship back to movies, you know, like we talked about, you can come and get a poster. You can come and uh, treat this very much like a a rock concert where you can come and get your event T-shirt and memorabilia. And the quote I love using is that it, it really clicked with people when you can come and see your favorite star up on the screen instead of your favorite artist up on the stage. It's that same mentality Mm -hmm. where you will do anything to see your favorite band, even if it's on a Wednesday, you know, and they're coming to the area. So we find that same appeal for people that make the trip out to us. It's like, I am not missing the opportunity to see my rock star up on the screen in 35. And as much as the Mahoning team does you know and progressively pushes i think a lot is owed to the fan base as well the fans who embraced the mahoning it became a part of them it really became a part of who they are and their lifestyle how they look at the world and movies on all that it i think connected the community in a way that it hadn't had in a long time And this area is insanely rich with drive-in culture. We're very lucky in that sense. Mm. But almost instantly, we felt this this love and push for what we were doing because it was unique, because it was rebel. We called ourselves the punk rock alternative drive-in for the first couple of years. (laughs) And that mentality 
I think is who we are. You know, we're little rascals. We are a group of friends who just want to put on an amazing show and have a great time with our buddies. And that is infectious for somebody who loves cinema at its purest form. The immersive installations and photo ops. I think the last time we spoke, you were prepping for an appearance by John Waters and a series of his films. What are some examples from the end of this season that you've been able to create for guests? We did uh, Bab's trailer for John Waters, which he was mind blown over. <laughs> uh, we had the great John Demmer, who's a master carpenter, put together that set for us. This year specifically, we had the giant Godzilla up front, which was definitely a biggie for Godzilla Palooza. Mm. Our werewolf weekend featured uh, Frazetta's. Frazetta's is fairly close to us in Stroudsburg. So, yeah, the the kind of big choice sets, you know, they are out of this world as far as the production value of them. You know, I, I say they're screen ready. You know, you could shoot these sets <laughs> for the actual movie. But the the team here and their love of what they do really just propels these ideas over the top. And the fact that the fan base so appreciates it. We've seen our poster artists, our T-shirt artists, our musicians who came to play out grow to the point where they got somewhat discovered on the lot. They get jobs off of their work on the lot. And it's this uh, kind of fertile, I don't know, breeding ground for creatives, if that's the right word. So Mm -hmm. it's a great element to what we offer, again, to have a memento to take away in this picture or you know, T-shirt or poster or whatever it is. It all kind of goes within. And we can't talk about the Mahoning without talking about the curated food and beverage experience. Oh, my God. (laughs) What are some of the things you've been doing recently? And what have been some of your favorite food and drink specials? Well, Mama Beth, Beth, our concession manager, we all call her Mama Beth, she is a master when it comes to that concession stand, not just managing it and keeping the team there happy, but also leaning into the creativity that we created with these specials and having a, a themed eat that you can have while you're watching your favorite movie. It just takes it to another level of, of madness. Some of my favorites. Oh my God, that is so tough. I do love when we get really creative with existing Items, that's what we really used to do is, you know, start mixing some of the ingredients that we have already available together. So I remember our, what do we call it? The Bill and Ted Most Excellent Burger had practically every menu item on it. It was French fries. <laughs> it was nacho chips. It was mozzarella sticks on top of a cheeseburger. So that one was pretty extreme. When we did Angus for our 90s event last year, we had these, well, there were some sort of a meatball concoction that was just amazing. That taste-wise really stood out. Mm. Recently, we did the Haddonfield sandwich for our Halloween event. There are some amazing menu specials that we offer and try to keep the names themed as well. So it's, uh, you know, it's an extra pull for people when they come. What are the current challenges in exhibition for drive-ins and specifically for the Mahoning as a 35 millimeter retro drive-in? 
the operating costs. You know, I think that in general is just a way of the life now is that every year things increase, every year things go up. And what we like to offer is the kind of ultimate affordable experience. So keeping our prices very low while still trying to find that that profit margin that works for us. As a 35 millimeter outfit, I'd say the hardest part is securing the 35 millimeter film. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times when we will want to play a title, studios won't have it, or the condition of it is not up to snuff. Then we'll go to our private collectors and nobody there has it. So we definitely have a ceiling as far as what we can do depending on the availability. Now, the, the opposite side of that is when we do find that one print, and we can really lean into the idea that this is a one-of-a-kind, once-in-a-lifetime screening. We do uh, Tarantino Agogo every year and work with Quentin directly, showing his prints, his private, personal prints. And having that clout and connection now with the not only the industry, but, you know, the kings of industry mm -hmm. has really opened up those doors for us. I would say besides that, I mean, the the team mentality here has been in, insane. You know, I look at all these people here as saviors to me. You know, all of us being able to come together and make this happen has shifted my entire life. And I owe my whole future and my family's future to all of their dedication and their hard work every single weekend, you know, mm. keeping that family unit tight and happy is always a challenge, you know, but trying to keep that family mentality is really where my head is at with the Mahoning team moving into the future. The challenges shift here all the time, you know, but they seem to get a little bit easier each year as far as finding our footing with what works for us? One thing that I've learned kind of just being in the industry, the indoor industry and the drive-in industry, is every owner needs to have the ability to pivot and shift, whether it's with Hollywood or the audiences or the climate of the world. And the Mahoning has been incredible at being able to pivot during the pandemic and beyond to try to keep the appeal of what we do strong and alive and the fact that we grow every single year is is the true inspiration to know that we are doing something right and looking ahead to the future to 2024 what do you have planned what can you share with us oh boy <laughs> well this is my favorite time of the year i say wearing a different hat as the booker curator here the planning of the shows is maybe my most favorite thing to do just yeah. knowing that we're going to have these things in the canon and when they shoot out and are announced people's brains are just going to explode um <laughs> for next year our first film ever shown was april showers which we're looking to do as a 75th anniversary celebration screening this year for our diamond anniversary we're going to try to do that actually on national drive-in day which would be a whole big celebration of the culture as well as what the Mahoney's been able to do over their run. We're coming up on 10 years of Zombie Fest, coming up on 10 years of Camp Blood. Mm. We'll likely have humongous guests for both of those, not to spoil anything. 
We found a new annual event last year with Muppets Take Mahoning. One of our biggest events of 2023 was this Muppets event, which was backed by the Henson Company. And Brian Henson actually came and did an intro for us, which is a mind blower. But that was born into an annual. We're going to lean into that one next year early in the season and really, really try to play it up as a, a weekend long run. But yeah, every year we do BHS Fest, which is one of our biggest events. I love that event so much that falls in July. I want to do a King Kong event next year. We're known for our Godzilla Palooza, but something has a nice ring about Kongathon. We did lock John Waters in for an annual, so it looks like the Filthy Film Festival will be coming back on a regular basis every single year. So John Waters has found his drive in home. The fact that it's taken on a like worldwide fandom to the point where John Waters knows who we are and loves us. It's it splits my brain in two. The 17 year old me that was running the video store, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. like it's just it's almost unfathomable that we've been able to reach the heights that we have and the notoriety that we have by purely just following our hearts. We didn't do anything special. We're not anybody special who, like, we're bred for this. It's like we are a group of film-loving filmmakers and creatives that found a way to make the drive-in more appealing in the modern age. It's still one of those things I have to pinch myself every day and be like, how did this dream come this true? (laughs) (laughs) From a kid who, uh, you know, was 13 years old talking about hey, wouldn't it be cool to run a family drive-in one day with all my cousins? And yeah. and for it to actually happen is a, it's just insane, you know? And that's thanks to the entire team and the entire community and everybody giving all that they can to the love of what the Mahoning represents, which is film, simple, pure film fandom. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Box Office Podcast. We come out every Thursday, so be sure to tune in next week for the latest in the news and box office from the cinema exhibition space. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the box office company, and recorded a podcast. Thanks, and have a great rest of your week.